In January of 2017, there were two marches held in Washington, D.C. The first march was composed of many people who were marching in the name of women's rights. They carried signs and chanted slogans which demanded equality for women. Many of these slogans and signs contained language which most people, I think, would find offensive and vulgar. Many of the participants in this first march wore hats which were shaped like female reproductive organs. The speakers in this march were angry, they were threatening, they were nasty and vile. There's very few children there. And if you look at the videos and the, the photos of this march, there were very few people really smiling. One week later, there was another march, the same city. This was the March for Life, a completely different march. Some of you were there. It was peaceful, and the expressions on the people's faces, at least from what I could see in the videos and the photos, <coughs> truly joyful and peaceful and uplifting. The chants and the signs that they had were encouraging. The speakers were pleasant to listen to. The theme of the first march, I think, could be summarized into this. It's my body. I can do whatever I want with it and don't get in my way. It's my choice. Stay out of my business. It's a very distorted sense of freedom. I think the theme of the second march could be summarized in this, an openness to God's will especially in terms of life, through being submission, submissive and obedient to God's commandments, His desires, His will. And there are spiritual components of these marches. In the first march, we saw a spirit of pride, rebellion, and selfishness. It reminded me of Eve. <coughs> The first eat. I'm going to eat that fruit because I want to. I don't care what anybody else is going to tell me. It's my choice. I have freedom. This is how I will exercise it. The spiritual component of the second march, I think, was humility. It reminded me of the new Eve, her fiat the yes that Mary said during the Annunciation. The first march claimed to represent the dignity and rights of women, but I believe it was actually an attack on women. It attacked the true, di the true dignity, the true identity, and the true vocation of women, not just there, but around the world. And I was not surprised because from the very beginning, Satan has been attacking women. It begins in Genesis with Eve. 
from the very beginning. And it goes all the way through the scriptures up until Revelation. We see that the devil is, is still attacking women. But we know what the end result is for the devil. I think it's interesting that the same method of attack is being used through lies and deception. It's very clear to me. And I think it's also interesting that if you really analyze the sins in our society which are breaking down families and tearing apart marriages, all of these sins are an attack on the dignity of women. All of them. Let's look at a few. Pornography. A blatant attack on women. Treating men to objectify their spouse or other women. Treat them as, as objects for their pleasure. It's a blatant attack on women. Look at the sin of artificial contraception. It's an attack on women. It once again teaches men to objectify women, but it's also a physical attack on women. In fact, when I do pre-Cana or pre-marriage training with people, when I talk about artificial contraception and the dangers, I rarely talk about the spiritual dangers. Because young people today, they're not so much concerned with the spiritual, but when you talk about physical dangers to somebody's body and their health, they're more attentive. And I'll talk about the physical dangers to a woman's body caused by artificial contraception, and they're grave. They're very dangerous. Artificial contraception, it's an attack on the dignity and on the bodies of women. We look at the sin of abortion. Yes, abortion kills human beings in the womb. It's murder. And for that, it's very bad. But it's also an attack on the dignity and vocation of women. Women are different from men in many ways, and one of the most beautiful ways that they're different is that they can bring life into the world. And the sin of abortion is an attack on that ability for a woman to bring life into this world. It's an attack on her vocation of being a woman. The title of this talk is somehow left out of the schedule you received, and I think it's maybe because the organizers were afraid that if it was published that nobody would come. The, the title of this talk is this, True Radical Feminism, How Ordinary Catholic Women Can Give Extraordinary Witness to a Fallen World. True Radical Feminism, How Ordinary Catholic Women can give extraordinary witness to a fallen world. And so this talk is going to center around five examples of a lady whom we all know. She's very important to me. I know she's very important to you as well, the Blessed Virgin Mary. So we're going to look at five examples in the sacred scriptures, mostly from the Gospel of Luke, about her life, we're going to look at some of the virtues, the characteristics, the values from her life that we can learn from and how to live out, how you women can live out your feminine identity in a very radical way. And then I'm going to tell a personal uh, story for each. 
The first I want to, the first event I want to look at is the Annunciation. There's many virtues of Our Lady displayed in the Annunciation. I think the most important is humility. She responds to the angel's message with total humility. At first, she's a little confused. She says, how, how can this be? You know, I have no relations with a man. She's probably a little anxious, right? An angel appears. She wasn't expecting it, and she's given this message. She's going to conceive and bear the Son of God. But the angel Gabriel reassure her, reassures her, saying it's going to be through the power of the Holy Spirit. Whenever the Holy Spirit comes upon somebody, brings peace, right? So brought Mary peace, and she's able to say, I'm the handmaid, I'm the humble servant of the Lord. Be done to me according to his will. It's very beautiful. Complete humility. In her perfect humility, she was able to receive the fullness of grace. If she did not have that perfect humility, she could not receive that fullness of grace. And she received the complete outpouring of God because she poured out herself. And in doing that, she prepared her heart, her soul, and her womb for the Son of God through humility. It's amazing to think about that. Now, what would the world say about this? What would the people in the first, first March say about this? Well, they say, well, women need to make a name for themselves. They need to make a legacy. They need to be as good as, if not better, than men in every aspect. They need to be independent and have to rely on nobody. They can't be dragged down by anything or anybody. It's startling that in our nation, what's happened in the past couple of years with equality between men and women, and how, uh, especially in the past year, how there's an attempt to push by many institutions and organizations to make the same standards, even for physical labor, equal among men and women. John Paul II, in writing his letter on the dignity of women, says that this is a, a serious trap. It's a temptation. It's very easy to fall into. And he, he reminds us that men and women are created differently, equal in dignity and value, but, but very different in many other ways. And he says when women try to become like men and men try to become like women, it's going to cause distortions in families and among societies. Just look at what's happened in the past year in our nation, in our world. He was a prophet. He's right on there. Mary had no idea what was going to happen to her. Yes, the angel told her. But she really had no idea what was going to happen to her. She could have never imagined what was going to happen. And it would not have happened if she did not have that perfectly humble spirit through which God was going to bring great glory through. When I was growing up, I, I knew that my mom could play the piano and the organ pretty well. I didn't know just how good she was until I was probably in college. I mean, my mom, she, although she didn't have a a college degree and, and really not much formal training in music. She could sight read almost anything. And she could transpose keys in her mind on an instant, just that easy, into a different key. And those of you who, who have 
any familiarity with, with a musical instrument, you know it's very difficult. Professional musicians will struggle with this for years or even decades if they can do it. And she could play almost anything by ear. Almost anything. She played at St. Rita's Parish, a small Catholic church in Kellogg, Idaho, for three decades of her life. For many funerals and almost every Sunday Mass there. She played in the local melodrama. And never once, never once, that I hear her brag or boast about her ability. And these abilities given to her were truly remarkable. She was so humble in accepting these gifts. It was beautiful. In 1999, I was serving in the Peacekeepers in the Sinai and invited my sister and my mother to come visit. It was a very peaceful time. And I took them around uh, Egypt for a couple days and then we went around the Holy Land in Israel for a couple days. And one of the places we went was to Mass at the Holy Sepulcher, which is one church built over the two sites where Jesus was crucified and then where he was buried in the tomb and rose from the dead. So it's one church built over the two sites because they're really pretty close to each other. And I remember we went to Mass there two mornings. The first morning was a little bit smaller. I think it was on a Thursday and it was a, a daily Mass there. And um, the next day, Friday, there's a little bit more solemnity. The Franciscans have uh, a chanted Mass there. There's a lot of music, and uh, there's usually a lot more people there. And that particular fright. That particular Friday morning, there was a lot of people there, more than I'd ever seen before. And I've been to a lot of Masses there. And for those of you who've been to the tomb, you'll know that only about three or four people can fit actually in the tomb itself. And then the rest of the people are outside the tomb and you're relying on microphones to know what the priest is saying uh, and so forth. And so while mass, was, uh, mass continued as normal up to communion, it was very beautiful. And during communion, it's not like the United States where it's very orderly, where people just get in lines. It's more chaotic, like trying to catch a flight in Europe. Everybody just tries to go up at once. And so I lost sight of my mom. And I thought, well, she's not going to leave the church without me. You know, I'm not too worried about it. So communion goes, and uh, the people are receiving communion. The, the monks or the, the friars, Franciscan friars, the priests and the brothers are chanting very beautiful Gregorian chant. The organist is, is playing something very amazing. And then right towards the end of communion, there's a, a pause, a silence, and then I heard, a, I heard, this, I heard the organ playing a, a very familiar song. And I was thinking to myself, this is a very American worship hymn. <laughs> and I, I'd met, I've met this Italian Franciscan brother who was an organist the previous day. He didn't know any English. I said, how does he know this song? He didn't. <laughs> and so after communion, final blessing was given. People start going away from the tomb. I found my mom. She had this huge smile on her face, which told me everything. But she told me afterwards, too. She said that after receiving Holy Communion, she walked up to the organ loft in the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. 
And after the Franciscan brother was done playing the, the hymn, the music for communion, he motioned to her, would you like to play? Absolutely incredible. This woman who grew up in the town of Carpenter, Wyoming, not over a thousand people, never formally really trained in music, very humble, very humble person, is praising God through music in the Church of the Holy Sepulchre in Jerusalem. I could have never have arranged that. <laughs> There's no way. But through her humility, God allowed her to worship and glorify God in a very beautiful and powerful way. It's really powerful. The same applies to all of you. When you pour yourself out, when you approach our Lord in perfect humility or close to perfect humility, you empty yourself out completely. It's going to free your mind, your soul, your body up to allow God to do His will through you. The world is going to tell you to depend on yourself to be strong and to do whatever you need to do to, so that you don't have to rely on anybody else. But humility is the foundation virtue of the Christian life. Humility is the foundation virtue of the Christian life. It sets the conditions for God to do great things through you. And these things which God is going to do through you, you can't even imagine at this point. The next event of Our Lady's life is a visitation. Many virtues being displayed, qualities of her life. But I, I, I'm looking at courage. When she gives that Magnificat, after uh, she's talked to Elizabeth a little bit, and Elizabeth has greeted her, and John the Baptist is leaping for joy in the womb, at the presence of Our Lord in Our Lady's womb, Our Lady gives Magnificat. The world would say this, about Our Lady and the Magnificat. It's okay for you to talk about God, just don't offend anybody. Don't do it in any public places. Don't do it where you work. Don't do it in your social gatherings. Don't do it in front of anybody who doesn't believe what you believe. Do it on the world's terms, which is translated, don't do it at all. Well, maybe in your church or your house if your family members aren't around. There's a story, or there's a family I, I know quite well. I met them in 2010, one of my duty locations. And it's a husband and wife and, and two girls. And those girls are still 10 and 12 years old in my mind, although I witnessed one of them in their marital vows a couple years ago. And the next one, I'm, she just surprised me two weeks ago, asking me to witness her marital vows uh, next September. Although I, I can't wrap my mind around it because she's still 10 years old in my mind. But the older girl, I first met her when she was 12. I, I watched her grow up for a couple years, and then after I moved away, we stay, stayed in touch with her family. And she graduated high school when she was 17. And she uh, went to a, a very large university. State University, which will remain nameless, but it has over 30,000 people at this university. So she's in a freshman psychology class of hundreds of people her first semester. She's still 17, freshman year, class of over 200 students. 
And this professor of the psychology class shows this video which portrays the Catholic Church as addicted, uh, basically a force which would uh, trample the, the rights and the freedoms of the world. It, it really portrayed the, the church as a monster, which is a complete lie. Everybody who's a devout Catholic knows that the commandments of our Lord, the teachings of our Lord and His church give true freedom and true peace to a person. But this movie was portraying just the opposite. So at the end of the film, the professor turns off the video and he asks the class, does anybody have, this, have anything to say about this? There is silence. So you ask again, does anybody have any opinion, any comment on this? My friend, Emily, 17 years old, stood up. And the exact words which she said, I can't tell you in this setting. But I can translate, that was a bunch of crap. That's not what the Catholic Church is. It's not what the Catholic Church teaches. It's not what the Catholic Church does. If you want to know what the church is truly about, talk to me after this class. Because I'm Catholic. She sat down. That was her Magnificat. It was not as beautiful or as theological as Our Lady's, but she was proclaiming the glory of God. In our Magnificat, your Magnificat does not have to be perfect. And unfortunately, so many people fail to give their own Magnificat because they think it's not going to be perfect. I know so many Catholics today who justify their silence in not giving their own Magnificat in evangelizing Jesus Christ to the world. I know so many today who justify their silence by using St. Francis. And that story of St. Francis, whether it actually happened or not, where he says, proclaim the gospel at all times, and when necessary, use words. A lot of Catholics will take that and say, well, I don't need to use words. St. Francis says I can just use my actions. Words are necessary now. Words are necessary. We live in a time of relativism. The voice of truth needs to be spoken. And when we speak this voice of truth, we will bring the presence of Christ into the lives of others. Our silence, on the other hand, will be filled with other voices. These voices will be speaking lies and deceit. The third event of Our Lady's life, the wedding feast of Cana. We can talk about this for weeks, but one virtue I want to look at is Mary's ability to be a leader. When she says to the servants, do whatever he tells you, it points to her son. All true Marian devotion always goes back to her son, Jesus Christ. If you're ever practicing a Marian devotion and it's ending in Mary as the object of your devotion, that's heresy and idolatry. She's always pointing to her son, always. She's leading people to her son, Jesus Christ. Now, what would the world say about this, especially the people in that first march? 
They're going to say, well, you, you just do whatever you want. Do whatever makes you happy, what brings you pleasure, what brings you joy, or what brings you benefit of one kind or another. Do what you want to do, not what somebody else tells you to do. You know, I often ask kids, what do you want to do when you grow up? And they'll tell me immediately. Then I'll ask the follow-up question, what does God want you to do? Silence, every time. Why is that? Why is that? There was a lady at one of my duty stations before I was even in the seminary, but people knew I was discerning priesthood. Can't keep that a secret very long. And there was a lady named Cheryl at this duty station, and she was a kind of woman that if she told you that she was going to pray for you, you knew she was getting on her knees every night to pray for you. And she did what vocations directors could not do. She was so encouraging in a, in a very beautiful, but also sometimes in a very, very motherly type. She's saying, you just need to go to the seminary and try it out. That's the only way you're going to know for sure. But she was right. She was absolutely right. I still use that, that bit of advice and wisdom when I talk to young men today, who are even uh, in the far reaches of, of their future uh, possibilities, just thinking about priesthood. I say, go to the seminary. That's the only place you can fully discern it. It's coming from Cheryl. I don't know how much longer I would have delayed my, my entrance into the seminary if it wasn't for Cheryl and her prayers, and especially her encouragement. I think, unfortunately, parents are often a deterrent for vocations, for religious vocations. So often I will hear parents say, well, well Father, I, I want my child to be happy. <laughs> and then I'll tell them about these studies from, from non-religious organizations which look at all sorts of vocations or jobs across the spectrum of the workforce every year placing religious life in the priesthood in the mid to upper 90 percentile. Every year. I've been a priest for over 12 years. I've never had a single second of doubt or regret. Not a second in over 12 years. Your words are very powerful. Your words can cause a very radical change in somebody's life. Your words can not only lead somebody, point somebody to Jesus Christ, just as Mary did, but that person who you pointed to Jesus Christ could lead hundreds or thousands or tens of thousands to Jesus Christ. And it can start with your words. If you survey any priest or any seminarian, you ask them what are their top three reasons why they're in the seminary or why they went to the seminary in the first place, they're going to say, well, some lady at church kept bugging me about it. <laughs> Guarantee it. And so many people today say that women just don't have any power in the church. Are you kidding me? The church is called Holy Mother Church. The greatest saint is Mary, the mother of God. And the prayers of women... Incredible. Incredible. You know, few things in this world are more radical 
than leading somebody to Jesus Christ, especially to a religious vocation. The fourth event I wanted to look at is the Nativity. Our Lady, once again, many virtues in her life there, compassion, dignity, hope, respect, generosity. But I want to point out some words which St. Luke records. Remember, he's, he's a physician by trade, so he's very detailed in his writing. And he records that after all the commotion had gone by, all the dust had settled after the Nativity, Mary's there with the child in her arms. She's looking at the child. And St. Luke says that she pondered these things in her heart. And when I see you holding children, I see that. You're pondering these things in, in your heart. It's very beautiful. Now, what's the world going to say about this? What's the people in the first march going to think about this? They're going to say, Mary, look at the mess you just got yourself into. You know, you could have had a, a good life for yourself, but now you're in a manger because there's no hotel rooms and you're surrounded by smelly animals and some shepherds. What are you going to do? By the way, you're an unbred, unwed bride. What are you going to do? Your life is ruined. They're going to tell her, live your life for yourself. You don't want to be tied down by another person, especially an infant. I have a very good friend in my home diocese of Spokane. And she was told when she was in high school by several medical uh, clinicians that she would never have children. They, were, they told her that it was physically impossible for her to have children. She and her husband have three kids right now because of the help of the Paul VI Institute in Omaha, Nebraska, which uses science within the guidelines of Holy Mother Church to help couples to have children in ethical and holy ways. She was told that uh, she was pregnant again with the fourth child. I was pretty excited because I, um, I didn't know her that well during the other pregnancies. And she'd asked me to be the godfather. And so I was, I was very excited. Unfortunately, I was going to Afghanistan, and I knew I'd miss the, the, uh, the birth. But from the very beginning, she was told by doctors that the, this fetus would never survive. It's not going to make it past four weeks. It's not going to make it past eight weeks, past 11 weeks, whatever. And so she was encouraged by several different people at several different times during her pregnancy to abort to terminate the pregnancy. She refused. She refused. And the pregnancy went up to 21 weeks. And at that point, which is still not viable, despite the many advances we have today, she went into labor and she gave birth to Teresa Ann. The doctor said that she wouldn't make it past four or five weeks. She made it to 21. The doctor said she, she won't, you know, she's not going to uh, be born at all. She'll just die in the womb and something else will happen. Tree Sand took one breath. 
she took a breath outside the womb. And at that point, she was baptized. And right after the baptism, as while Tresan was dying in the arms of her mother, I have a picture of that. Her mother was looking at Tresan and pondered these things in her heart. It's powerful. Whenever I'm in Spokane and I'm driving south on Highway 195, I stop in the small town of Thornton, Washington, population 237. I stop at the cemetery there and I go to Teresa Ann's grave. I'm not praying for her. Because our, our faith teaches us that just as certain as the sun's going to rise tomorrow morning, Teresa Ann is in heaven right now. She's baptized. Impossible for her to commit personal sin. She's in heaven right now with the angels and the saints. But I stop at her grave every time I'm near there and I pray for her family. And I pray in thanksgiving for the gift that was given to these parents, even though it was very short and span. But it was a very radical witness that these parents gave in bringing this child to 21 weeks. And if they hadn't, it's very unlikely that she would have been baptized. And then we would not have the certitude that she's in heaven right now. It's incredible. Absolutely incredible. Would not have been made possible if this woman and her husband listened to these doctors early on, saying, just terminate now. Just terminate now. The final event in Our Lady's life I want to look at is in John chapters 19 and 20. Our Lady's at the foot of the cross with John the Evangelist and two other women. She's showing the virtue of great compassion for her son. The word compassion is made up of two words, which means uh, to suffer with. Did you know that? Pasio is suffering and calm is with. You're suffering with somebody. So to have compassion for somebody means you're suffering with somebody. It's powerful just to think about that. And John Paul II writes an, an entire letter on this, titling it Redemptive Suffering. If you've never read it, you need to. It'll change your complete outlook on suffering and humanity. It's very powerful, especially how it goes into uh, the role of Our Lady at the foot of the cross as she suffers with her son. Now, what's the, the first march going to say about this? What's the world telling us about suffering? The world is simply saying, you don't need to suffer. You can't be happy if you're suffering. Do whatever it takes to not suffer. Do whatever it takes to avoid it at all costs. Whether it takes money or wealth or possessions or drugs or alcohol or gambling, whatever it takes, get rid of suffering. And if these things don't work and you're still suffering, well then just end your life. And we're seeing a very scary trend now in many states in our nation passing euthanasia laws very quickly. Because of this mentality, suffering is bad, avoid it at all costs, if you can't do anything to avoid it, just end it right there. The world says there is no place for suffering. 
Our faith teaches us something very different. I remember my first parish. One night I was standing in front of a man and woman who were holding each other's hands, looking into each other's eyes, professing their love for each other. They were surrounded by some family and friends. It was their nuptial mass. It was a very beautiful moment. One hour later, I'm not exaggerating, one hour later, I'm once again in the presence of another couple, a man and a woman, holding each other's hands, looking into each other's eyes, professing their love for each other, surrounded by a couple friends and family. But the situation, the circumstances were very different. They'd been married for several years, had two children, and he was in his final days of cancer. It was a very bad year for him. And at any point, the wife could have left him. She could have left him with the kids. She could have just taken off, go start a new life somewhere, honestly. She could have taken the kids with her. She could have sent him to a nursing home or to hospice a long time before that. But she was there up to the very end. She cared for him and suffered with him, showed incredible compassion. I tell this story every time I, I prepare a couple for marriage. I'm talking about the difference between being young and in love and what true love is. One hour difference, no exaggeration. You know, the more hedonistic that our society becomes, focus on pleasure and enjoyment, the more pressure there will be to euthanize. It's an incredibly radical witness to suffer with somebody. And it's an extraordinary witness to God's love. And as a priest, I will tell you that some of the most beautiful encounters I have with people is when somebody's dying and there's a woman there, whether she be younger or older, she's comforting the person who's dying. Absolutely incredible, remarkable for me to see, very edifying and encouraging for me to see as a priest. I'm sure if you were to ask the other priests here tonight, they would tell you the exact same thing. It's an incredible, a radical love to suffer with and for somebody. So how will we turn the tide in this battle for the dignity of women in our society. How can we make a difference? Because the opposition is pretty strong and they're well-funded. There's a lot of people who fall in very easily for these lies and these deceptions. That first march was pretty large. I grew up in Northern Idaho and Having forest fires uh, during the summer was just a part of everyday life, although it's getting more pronounced throughout the nation now, but it, I remember it almost every uh, summer. And fire science is very interesting. If you look at how firefighters will, will fight forest fires, it's very interesting. To, to stop a forest fire, this blaze which is raging out of control, they'll actually light another fire. They'll fight fire with fire. 
they will light these controlled fires in the path, the predicted path of this raging inferno coming towards them. Because that smaller fire will burn back towards the big fire, consuming everything in its path. And when these two fires meet, it's going to be pretty big. But then it's going to be completely out. It's amazing. They're putting out forest fires with fire. I believe that the tide will be turned by women such as you living out your vocation as a woman, the dignity of women, the, the identity of women in a radical way, in an extraordinary way. Notice in these five examples of the lives of Our Lady, the life of Our Lady throughout the, the Gospels, I use five stories of women who you don't know. And you know it? If they were here, you wouldn't know who they are, unless I pointed them out. You don't know most of their names. You don't know anything about them. You certainly don't know what they look like. And I did that intentionally. Of course, I could have used uh, the lives and examples of some of the great medieval mystics, like Teresa of Avila, a powerhouse, or Therese of Lisieux, or some of the early Christian women martyrs, like Lucy or Cecilia. Felicity of Perpetua. I could use the life of Saint Monica or a recent saint like Saint uh, Teresa of Calcutta. I intentionally chose the lives of very ordinary Catholic women who changed the lives of many people through extraordinary acts and words. And I'm convinced that I could pull maybe 10, 15, maybe even 20 stories from this group. So I was assigned with some of you up until just this past July. And those of you who, who were assigned with me, you know that I never use a story where I get it from and the place where I get it, I never use it. Or if I know that the people are going to be there where I'm talking, I never use it. Otherwise, if I was giving this talk somewhere else, I'd have easily 15 or 20 more stories to choose from. Easy. And that's just of the women I know here. I'm certain that every one of you has a story. You may not think it's extraordinary, but I'm sure it is. You may think you're just living, you're just an ordinary Catholic woman living her, her faith the best she can. Nothing extraordinary about it, but in reality it's probably very different. The lies, the deception, of these so-called women's rights movements, which claim to represent the true intentions and, and well-being of women in our culture today, they will be manifested. These lies and these deceptions will be made known to others when ordinary Catholic women, like you, live out your feminine identity in your vocation as a woman in extraordinary ways. Praise be Jesus Christ, now and forever.